Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host and co-GM of some kind, Miguel. This is fun. Ever since we've started doing the RPG Danger Room, it's like he's keeping you on your toes. You never know what I'm going to be week to week. I'll tell you, though, this week, I'm the TM. So, wait. Isn't that that's what you were recently when we did Time Wizards, though? And I assume you're not the Time Master. I am not the Time Master. No, I'm not. All right. Before we get too distracted here, this is episode 151 of Comparing Campaign, the show where we used to compare and contrast the campaigns of the past. But uh, and I don't know where I had my vowels there, but. The record will show. And uh, we, so what we used to do is we used to each bring the stories of a role playing game that we'd run in the past and, uh, you know, try and glean insights and stuff from our conversations about those. But, uh, Dangus, I'm the only one who's got uh, examples of things like that to talk about anymore. McGill done finished all his notes. And so now McGill brings the new stuff with the RPG Danger Room where we check out exciting new RPGs that we haven't maybe heard of or played before. And meanwhile, I'm still doing the same old thing. I'm telling the tales of my 5e campaigns and how they went. And uh, we're doing Coyote's Aegis. We're still following up on the my, ver- my take, my campaign's take on the writhing in the dark module from uh dungeons and dragons adventures league expeditions ddex 313 i believe it was is that a, is that a question for me it is it is that hell yeah got it in one it is that i mean i i just checked to make sure um this is odd have you seen that Wizards of the Coast seem to have a new uh, a new logo. Uh-oh. No, I, I don't. Is this more Wizards of the Coast drama? Uh, no, it's just I don't recognize this logo for them. Here, I'll show it to you. I'm looking it up. You, oh well, yeah! I, wow! I, yeah! What the heck it's is like this? Arches. It's like a portal. This isn't. Uh, yeah, this is worse, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> All right. All right. We got we got the hot take from McGill. Uh, you know why it's uh, worse? You know why it's worse, Tom? I can even tell you why I think it's worse. I am just. I'm really not a fan of this particular trend in logo design and it's everywhere now you know what this logo looks like to me can you name a few current properties so more than anything this looks like the blizzard logo to me but i think it's because it has the colors in it and the colors are very the blizzard. colors true yeah but, but no i mean like that the the shape of that a this kind of uh sans serif block text layout this looks like the mandalorian this looks like Andor, this reversed out spelling, taking the bridge off the A. Like, it really looks like, and it looks like a bunch of, like, Marvel logos to me as well. Um, yeah. I really, I mean, 
maybe I'm just a Luddite, but uh, I I feel like that previous Wizards of the Coast one that had the sort of, it was like in the Tales of a Comet kind of a look. I feel like that at least had uh, a bit more of an iconic and individual, a unique look to it than this one. This one really does to me look like just the text on the, the Mandalorian logo. Yeah, let's let let's investigate this because I just saw it. I was on DM's Guild looking up the uh, the Writhing in the Dark module. Yeah, Wizards of the Coast uh, gets new logo and look amidst Hadspro's shakeup. This uh, this was uh, February twenty sixth, twenty twenty one. What? I only just saw this. Yeah, this, this is this is ages ago. this is news to me. Um, here, let me. I linked to it. Let me see if I can actually get the the image to show up at the chat. We've even got uh, two years ago Reddit posts where they say Wizards of the Coast just got a new logo. Looks pretty sweet. <laughs> nah, man. Like, click on that link that I posted. That I mean, I, the, that, I've seen, I, I know the one that you're talking about. I'm also saying that, like, all these Reddit comments are like, it looks so bad, very generic and lazy. Uh, like, it is a fine logo, but I don't feel like it really captures the character of Magic and Wizards of the Coast. It just sort of looks like the logo of some generic video game. Um, there, that second link that I just posted. Uh, Here's a really good shout. As somebody said, um, it looks like the Fortnite logo, and I think that's actually really spot on. What What are you sending me now? Oh, all the different. Yeah. Logos. So there's okay, the so evolution. This 20, so this is 2021 to present, huh? Yeah. And uh, so this has been happening for a couple of years now. And, I just haven't seen it, I guess. And I, I didn't even notice that they had removed the uh, the yellow from the logo in 2008. The previous iteration, 2008 to 2021, is the sort of banner comet design I was talking about. But they took the, the yellow out of it. And I think that that sucks, too. I think that that was a bum move. I think that that 99 to 2008 logo is is downright iconic and really sets itself apart. Cause cause here, Tom, uh, take a look. I mean, 93 to 99 isn't that far off either. It just doesn't have the shape of it down. It also doesn't have the me, the color. Like the colors, uh, that yellow really makes it pop. I think. What's funny to me is that uh, the 1990 to 93 Wizards of the Coast makes it look like a vampire clan from Vampire the Masquerade because uh, it's that black and white, just like gothy looking. Uh, the, the 1990 to 1993 logo, um, I love not because it's a great logo, but because it looks like the sign of an independent game store. Yeah, to me, it really looks like one of the the Vampire the Masquerade clan books. <laughs> they would always have their their little like clan logo on that kind of. It would just be this kind of like black and white with the same same vibe. But like, like look at that, Tom. Look at what I just posted. This this the blue so variant McGill's of the sharing, Mandalorian. <laughs> McGill sharing a logo for the Mandalorian that like yeah. Um, I don't know. I I was. It's so this blue the blue sans serif logo. block text with no bridge on the A. 
I'm I was thinking of uh Fortnite here. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, this is clearly the design trend of our time is the blue sans serif block text. Um but I find that you know, it, it's just it reminds me of when everything was trying to be like Apple where it was like stark white sans serif font uh, with rounded edges, usually in all lowercase. Like, that was a big design trend for a long while. And, uh, I don't know, man. Well, this was an unexpected development. I didn't even realize. Apparently, this is two years old news. Uh, not that we don't specialize in old news here on uh, Comparing Campaign. But, uh, yeah, I... Um, yeah, I've seen this A that you're posting the Andor, and like it reminds me of Apex Legends as well. Um, but you know, yeah, so, so here's I see what you're saying. Yeah, here's here's my final sort of button on on the point that I've been making though is what other logo looks like the previous Wizards of the Coast logo? Can you think of any? Uh, the, the old the one third edition Dungeons and Dragons logo. <laughs> Oh, I guess so. But I mean, that's appropriate, though. That's like one of their exactly. products. Exactly. That's one of their products. That's exactly it. But like that that banner with the yellow and the comet on it, that logo to me doesn't really look like any other popular brand logo. Whereas, I mean, as we just saw, as soon as I saw this one, I'm like, this looks like a bunch of other logos that I've seen. Yeah, I don't know, tut, man. Tut. I was just... <laughs> I was just looking for information about Writhing in the Dark, and then suddenly I see that Wizards of the Coast has this logo. Apparently, they've had it for like two years. We got to get our buddy um, Grant on here to to really dissect this with his graphic design oh, knowledge. Yeah. He he fonts. he will have opinions on this logo. Let me tell you. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, okay, so I'm doing Writhing in the Dark, which in my version of it, what did I even call it? Like. It's been a while since I mentioned. This is Operation... I want to say it's Operation Winter, but... Uh... I keep getting confused because you spent so long on birth and death, which also... Because there's also death and birth, and between uh, those two operations and the amount of time it took to get through birth and death, uh, now I just feel like we're just perpetually in birth and death. I mean, yeah, I think that's a fair statement. Um... Let me see. Uh, uh. Hey, I got it right. It was Operation Winter after after Operation Birth and Death. Hey oh. Hey oh. I am one. We could take out some of that time where I'm looking it up. Why would I do that? Ah, yeah, right. Um, but yeah, and and. You know, we've been doing this Writhing in the Dark module, which we've covered on the podcast before in its, like, original format because it's a cool module. Um, but the way I've been doing it for Coyote's Ages, or the way it's transpired, is we basically, every episode, we cover one chamber of this dungeon. Um, you know, we, we covered the intro and getting there and the first chamber. Then we covered the fight with the Gith in the second chamber. Then in the northern chamber, we last time we covered the fight with the, the, uh, the gas spores and the, the intellect devourers and all that nonsense. And now this time, 
McGill, it's the only one that's left other than the main center of the chamber, which we'll be doing next time. Um, this is the puzzle room. It's the, the chest of brains. The brain box. Uh, yeah, brain cooler uh, that the illithid has. We're in the lair of an illithid, and he has these various chambers around his vault. And uh, one of these chambers, the one that we come to this time, well, it's a, it's a cooler chamber than the other ones. Um, so, Jand, having just gained Elusive from reaching level 18, has entered into this chamber uh, and rolls a nat 20 on stealth, getting a 36, according to this here, uh, and says, you blink and I am gone. And I say, Jent disappears into the shadows as they proceed ahead down the corridor, stretching southeast. And uh, they say, what do my Kenku eyes see? I say, Jent creeps up to the doorway of yet another chamber, roughly, roughly identical in size and shape to the other three. This room has a much cooler temperature with a chilling mist pooling around the floor and frost crawling up the sides of the walls. In the center of the chamber sits a curious-looking crate. The crate appears to be frozen over into a solid block of ice. A small pedestal of sorts rises from the ground on one side of the crate, its face featuring a beaten copper plate which appears to be divided into square sections. This design reminds you of Greasel's control panel in the MPOC portal room, at least in shape. We'll shout out to another little control panel they may have seen in the past. And once again, there is a basin in this chamber, just like the other three. In this one, the basin is against the western wall. Across from you can see another doorway opening to a corridor, which seems to head southwest back to the first one you entered. And uh, so they creep forward and stay 15 feet away from the uh, the crate. Jet slips slips into the room, strafing to keep a distance between them and the strange frozen crate. Behind them stands the basin for this chamber, and uh, they try to see any details of the crate through the ice. And I simply say it appears to be a gr it appears to be gray with a white lid. You know what? I think I was playing uh, Alien Isolation around this time, so I think I was imagining one of the crates from Alien Isolation, which are kind of like like cooler lunch boxes. Man, they got those little cooler tops on them. I hadn't considered it, but you know what? Uh, now that you say that, all I can think is, man, what a perfect module to do like a full-on alien reskin to. I could see this working really well as like an a, an adventure in the setting of the Alien movies. You know, you just need just, to change the brains to be like dna samples or something well the the first room where you got the gif it's just it's some xenomorphs and they have cocooned a space marine the the gas spore chamber it's a chamber full of eggs with face huggers right yeah and then yeah you could have uh just it it could be anything it could be like you could pull in those the prometheus Ooh, aliens do. and uh and make it like, you know, a, an elaborate lock in a colony that's been taken over or something. Yeah, what I was thinking is uh, in the cold room, you've got like uh, in cold storage, some sort of like DNA sample that is necessary to open the like bio coded lock that enters into like the central chamber. Where the where like the alien of... queen is being held captive, you know, the... by Wayland Yutani practically writes and, itself and it needs or Wayland Yutani DNA code to enter. Sure. Or you know what? We could take it one step further 
And rather than it being all Wayland Utani stuff, maybe this is a predator hunting ground. It, oh! This is where the predators go to release the queen alien to go on one of their like training hunts for the new predators. And the twist at the end is that the predators did 9-11. Well, now, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's had... a really deep cut. <laughs> It's not what I recognize, Tom. Where's that from? So the wildest thing is that this is from a podcast we did ages and ages ago. Oh my god! Back when wait. we did the Tom Lando files in the first episode, Tom, of Tom versus Lando Predator. Files, I'm very high, and I try and I'm trying to explain the plot of one of the Predator comics, wherein Arnold Schwarzenegger is like goes to Siberia to track down a predator that's attacked a like Soviet missile base um, because it's like the Soviets will think that the Americans have attacked the missile base and will attack America based on that, but they don't realize that it was actually the predator that attacked their missile base. And so like Arnold Schwarzenegger has to get it under control. And your comment on that was like, well, that's just stupid. And I was like, is it? Did I mean... Did the Predator do 9-11? <laughs> it, it spirals out of control very quickly. Of course. Um, does this mean that you... Is this your subtle way of saying that I need to make that episode of the Tom Lando Files public for our listeners? No. No, I don't think we need to make that public. I just... It popped in my head for some reason. For some reason, it's like just this inside joke that's like crystallized in my mind is like oh yeah the predator did 9-11 it's a little known little known thing that people always talk about it being an inside job it was a false flag attack but the flag was actually predator nobody realizes everybody knows that it was kermit the frog it was kermit the frog oh my god we're getting sidetracked but you don't know this um, no i don't know about this this is you can this is something you can easily find online but uh there is a Muppets Christmas special. I can't remember when it was made, but uh, in it, it's like a, it does the It's a Wonderful Life thing where Kermit gets a chance to see what the world would be like if he had never been born. And just one of the weird background details is that uh, the World Trade Center <laughs> is there in the universe where he wasn't born, but it's it's not in in our universe <laughs> man so that that's like a whole conspiracy where it's Talking like about butterfly effects. exactly somehow the muppets are responsible as proven nah, man. by this one christmas think, special i think because of that one uh comic book that the predators are always responsible we are uh, we have all these political calamities happen all over the world and we don't realize that it's just because the predator we haven't realized that the predators well yeah they're they're invisible <laughs> yeah how would they we use know our own voices anyway all that to say my point was that just the something about the structure of this and the encounters that you have uh it really clicked with me just now that like you could do a very easily alien a very easy alien reskin of writhing in the dark I mean, even the, the title of the module, Writhing in the Dark, sort of lends itself to the ideas present in the Alien franchise. 
It's a very funny thing as well because I did run this in my cyberpunk uh, ah. uh, campaign. Uh, I mentioned that it's an illithid uh, lurking under Barry. Um, right. Although it's not an illithid, it's just an alien. It's just a straight up there's an alien. And what was really funny about that is at that point in the campaign, I had never alluded to... or. I had maybe quietly alluded to, but never in a way that was really central that got the player's attention to the fact that there were aliens in this world. And so they had been very much experiencing like a shadow run thing. And when they got to this uh, mystery under Barry, they were like, oh man, what, what could this be? This could be anything. It could be like a weird corporate experiment or it could be like, uh, a wizard like a necromancer that's harvesting people's brains and then I just had it literally be aliens and they were like oh my god there's aliens in this city <laughs> and I'm like yeah they're just fully aliens man that's <laughs> I kind of love that they're like cons- uh, how they consider like death magic but then aliens is like wait a minute <laughs> that exists I don't know I mean that's well, kind of shadow run right there why one but not the other <laughs> i guess because one is like common in shadow run like there's there's lots of magic in shadow run but in shadow run i don't know how often they have just like grays come down and start mucking around in people's business fair so um Jenk goes back to Hexaquila and says, so I hope you're not going to be bothered by cold because the next room is frosty. Also, I have a suspicion we may need to pray- place brains in those chambers, although I don't want to. And uh, <laughs> then we have a, a a goofy thing where Alex kind of like responds to information that she did not just tell him. And uh, he gets a bit ahead of himself. So um, the thing is, we can we can... Uh, also, uh, one of the things, so we can kind of jump ahead here because you and I know the basic premise of this room. I mean, McGill, you could probably explain pretty easily how the puzzle in this room works. Do you remember it? Uh, so let's see if I can do this all from memory. It is like, uh it's no pun intended right indeed uh so uh, now i'm trying to remember exactly how it is described in the module the way i always depict it is that it's a big like refrigerator sized block of ice filled with brains of different shapes and sizes and set into one side of it is a panel with symbols on it right yeah, and so for for this version, I have it's just like a a frozen cooler that is like frozen to the ground in a solid block of ice, um, and then a, a small pedestal of sorts rises from the ground on one side of the crate. Its face featuring a beaten copper plate, which appears to be divided into square sections. Right, and there are symbols on the different sections, and you're trying to like match them. It's like a memory game. Is that correct? It is. It's memory. You are yeah. pressing the different blocks, and then they are coming up symbols, and you are trying to. You are playing a game of memory, basically. Yeah. Um, with what what symbols are under each uh square. And when you solve that puzzle the chest unlocks or the ice block melts you can now get all the brains inside 
and each of the rooms that the players have passed through at this point, they each have a basin with a different brain that goes in it. And when you place the correct brains at the correct basins, the central room is open where the illithid resides. This is correct. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up, I'm more specifically drilling down on that memory puzzle um, because, to put it plainly, I screwed it up. Um, it The simple way to do this is to simply run it as a memory puzzle. Um, I screwed it up because there is like an extra layer to it that I did not entirely understand. Um, so it's got this sidebar called running the brain teaser. The puzzle is called the brain teaser. And um, so a card... Uh, or sorry, uh, if the cards do not match, the character or characters that selected those cards must succeed on a DC 14 constitution saving throw or take 2d10 points of psychic damage. Those that succeed, uh, save for half, basically. The cards are then returned face down to their original place on the table. So that makes sense. If you get it wrong, you take psychic damage, right? but otherwise it works the same as a game of memory. You turn the cards back over, got it wrong, try again. Um, a character revealing the demon sigil takes 1d10 points of necrotic damage. Uh, so there is one symbol that if you turn the card over and it shows that symbol, you immediately take damage. Here's the thing that confused me. Um, a uh, simultaneously revealing two demon sigils results in 2d10 points of necrotic damage to each character that revealed a demon sigil. A successful DC 13 constitution, constitution saving throw reduces this damage by half. If both of the demon sigils are revealed, all of the cards are turned face down, shuffled, and laid out once more. Now, I'm not sure like there's even a way it describes it um if both the demon sigils are revealed all uh sorry no um 2d10 points of necrotic damage to each character that revealed a demon sigil which implies that more than one character is going to be turning over a card at a time does that track for you or does that like make any sense it makes sense, but I should say that when I run this, I sort of run this puzzle differently. Um, I, I, I don't do it that the cards get turned back over when a player guesses wrong. Um, instead, I, I, I've only ever run this on roll 20, and I have created like a little grid with, si with sigils that I can, you know, make appear or disappear. Uh, based on where where the players touch, and instead of it I, dealing I did the same thing, instead of it dealing psychic damage, though, I have it be that every time they get it wrong, a new gif is going to show up one round later. So it's I I sort of do it like like cranking up the tension versus just like them getting zapped for getting the wrong answer. It's more like yeah, every time you get this wrong, more people are alerted that this is where you are. So I just include a little image of how I was running this in Roll20. Basically, I would black out the cards um, and then have them pick which 
uh, which card in the grid they want to turn over, and then I would reveal that card. Um, the thing is that I, I'm not entirely sure what went wrong here, but something about this idea of the, the, the puzzle reshuffling itself, um, I was actually, I was accidentally doing that more often than it was supposed to happen. And it basically resulted in the puzzle being effectively impossible because if the puzzle keeps shuffling itself, it's basically like an impossible game of memory, right? If if memory depends on you remembering where the things were, and if the things start moving around between your guesses, then it becomes, like, um, unnecessarily hard. Yes. Uh, then it just becomes more about, like, getting a run than it does have anything to do with memory. Which, I mean, that's fine as a puzzle, but it it this whole thing is is mind themed, so it should be a memory game. Right. And the the issue I ran into, I again I'm not sure exactly how we ran into it. Um, particularly because like I'm pretty sure it was just one person was turning over cards. And that thing about like even the idea of simultaneously revealing two demon sigils, like, um, I don't know, maybe it happened that, or, or no, it, it wouldn't make sense because what happens when you turn over a demon sigil is you take damage and then you turn it back over. So the idea of simultaneously revealing demon sigils, I think, requires you to have people turning over more than one card at a time. Whatever it is, like I say, we got into this frustrating situation where some at some point the puzzle reset itself in a way that was unfair to the players. However, um, this is not to diminish the fact that Alex, my brother, who was playing Connor and Hexaquila, actually came up with a brilliant um, like hack, spell-based hack for this puzzle. Uh, are you familiar with the spell Augury? Oh, I really should be because uh, it sure rings a bell, but no, I can't tell you off the top of my head. So, um, Alex says, a frozen box, you say, and a copper plate that looks a bit like Greasel's control panel. Do you think we should touch it? And Hex looks at Connor, who will cast Augury, and augury is you ask a question and then the fates basically provide you an answer of whale, woe, both, or neither. And he says, in the context of our mission, what happens if we touch the panel? Hmm. And uh, then, so for touch the panel, I say both. And uh, I say for the augury result. And he says, damn thing always says both, Connor says, shaking his head. Which, that is the limitation of augury, is that the more vague the question gets, the more likely you are going to get a both answer, because it's like, I don't know, it could go either way, buddy. Um, so touching the panel, it's like, well, yeah, that's how you interact with the puzzle. It could hurt you because you do the puzzle wrong, or you could solve the puzzle. So I don't know what to tell you. Um Meanwhile, Gent says, ooh, should we touch it is my favorite question. <laughs> um, Hex resumes, well, if there's will in it for us, then I guess we should, regardless of the woe. 
As for the cold, I have a little help. Maybe I should handle this one. And Hex finishes tapping his ring of cold resistance. So Hex enters the room and approaches the box. And uh, Gent hangs by the entrance silently and takes out a, gold, a grenade just in case. Connor stays with Gent and uh, Gent says, got you covered. And Hex says, please don't throw it early this time. And Hex goes to inspect the box of the copper panel. So I explained that the copper plate on the pedestal is divided into nine square sections. Uh, this is really just for Hex unless other people join in. Um, Hex reaches out and touches the top left panel. As Hex's hand approaches the top left square, he gets a sensation similar to someone speaking to him telepathically, almost like he could hear someone inhale telepathically somewhere in the room. And he says, Psst, Jen, are there any people here? Did you check? And I say, does Hex follow through and touch the panel? And Jen says, I don't see it. I didn't see anyone. And it's not like anyone could see me. And uh, I say, I need to know if Hex touches the square, pulls his hand back, or leaves his hand hovering above the square. He says, hovering, definitely. And Hex rolls sleight of hand. This is uh, the special rule. A character may attempt a DC 14 skill check of the DM's choice to peek at a single card. This check can be attempted up to two total times during this puzzle, regardless of the number of characters, i.e. one character can peek twice or two can peek once. Further attempts fail. Do you ever run the, do you do that when you run this module or do you think that's too complicated? Um, I think that's a bit too complicated, but I mean, as I've also said, when I run this module, it tends to go a bit quicker than it's gone with the Coyote's Aegis party. So I don't know if I was running it for a, a higher level party, I might, uh, might not be afraid to make it more complicated. I mean, yeah, basically the way that I ran this was I had sort of like a I treated that special rule as being like the Illithid almost has like a telepathic hint system built into this control panel where if you just hover your hand above one of the cards and roll sleight of hand, you can potentially get like a psychic impression of the card without turning the card over. And so that's what's happening with Hexier. And he does choose to just hover his hand over it. And uh, Gent scans the room uh, now for any sign that someone might be present. Gent's blind sense is 10 feet, and he, uh, they enter the room to move around a bit to do a full scan. Meanwhile, Hex, the longer their hand hangs there, the more definite the psychic impression in their mind becomes. They see an image of a chaos star, four lines intersection, actor, intersecting at one middle point in his mind. And he says, hmm, I'll move my hand over to the top middle panel and hover it there for, uh, hover it there for a bit. And uh, meanwhile, Gent creeps around the room, listening carefully for signs of movement or any hidden presence. After a couple of minutes, Gent is satisfied that they are the only ones in the room. Hex rolls a 24 for sleight of hand, and uh, Gent joins Hex by the panel and says, Looks like it was only us. Why the paranoia? And another psychic impression, this time of three small asterisks arranged in a triangle. And uh, Alex says, There's some gross kind of magic here, putting pictures in my head. He says, I'll move to the top right one and, and hover there. As you move your hand from the middle square, the psychic sound begins to die down until it is gone from your mind. And uh, while Hex is doing this, Gent tries to push the crate five feet. And uh, Hex says, well, the good news is that the magic's gone. The bad news is I have no idea what this thing is or what it does. 
Gent rolls Perception, 26. I say, as your hands near the block of ice, you can feel the intense freezing cold emanating from it. You suspect this object would be painfully cold to touch. Are you sure you want to try pushing it? And they say, nope. Does that ring protect you from touching cold, Hex? And Hex says, a little. What were you thinking? Pick it up and drop it real hard? Jen says, we have a wonderful game where I live called curling, spelt with a K. <laughs> didn't know if it, it didn't know if just sliding it would reveal something while I push every button available on that panel. I'm not much for puzzles. Let's do it. Does Hex tell me what he saw? And Connor will enter the room now and Hex says, oh yeah, sorry. I will relay the two images I saw in their associated panels. Uh, Chantel says, oh, sorry. First thing I thought was Connor sets off a trap. <laughs> Connor casts Death Ward on Jet and then moves back out of the room. Uh, so Jet goes and pushes the top middle, the top middle, the middle right, the bottom middle, and then the middle left or attempt to in that order. And uh, Alex says, oh, a little diamond. And Jet says, Jet's rapper name. A little, uh, little diamond. Say, yeah. So th what happens here is they basically end up doing two picks on the memory game, and they start off with the top middle and the middle right. And so I say when you touch it, the top middle square turns over, revealing three asterisks organized in a triangle. You then touch the middle square, the, the middle right square, which turns over and reveals a spiral with a line cutting through it vertically. At this point, I have them roll constitution, and Jet experiences a moment of t a brief moment of tunnel vision in which the two symbols that turned over overlay in her field of sight as psychic impressions that seem to burn while they appear to Jent. Jent takes 23 psychic damage. Both squares turn back over, leaving the brass plate with nine blank square sections again. Hex pushes the chest with all his might, getting a nat 20 for 22 total. The ring is obviously working. Hex feels tired pushing against the block, but he isn't hurt by it. This is something that I always like to mention whenever Hex is in a cold environment is that Hex as a lizard man in my mind gets like fatigued by cold temperatures. Do you know this about cold blooded animals? Yeah, they get all or, sluggish the colder they get. Yeah, I learned that in uh, Magic School Bus. That seems like the type of information that could like by now have turned out to be apocryphal. Like is they it was in Magic School Bus, but turns out it's not true but hell if i know man i just like the idea that hex gets tired when it's cold i i, I want to say i'm pretty sure it's true but after that incident with the dinosaur information i got as a kid uh i i can't say for certain anymore yeah right um so wait is there a specific story behind that yeah there or is, is did, just about did i not tell this i, I must not have told it um, Man, if I'm going to tell the 9-11 Predator story, you've got to tell this story. <laughs> okay, when I was a little kid, I, you know what, uh, even before I say that, I want to preface this by saying, what I am about to say is something that people used to think, and not just people like... I have some guesses at what this is, too. Oh, I'd love to know. So, I, I mean, the story begins with when I was a kid, I had a book about dinosaurs that contained this tidbit of information that, in hindsight, is completely ludicrous. It was proven to be untrue, but nobody told me that. And then when Caitlin and I went to the Museum of Nature... I told her this fun fact about dinosaurs, and she looked at me like I was an absolute moron. What do you think it was? 
Is it that they have brains in their butts? That's exactly it. Yeah, dinosaur brain and tail. Uh, contrary to popular myths, dinosaurs like Stegosaurus did not have a second brain in their butt. Exactly. But for a long time there, people thought it. Or maybe they didn't. Maybe it was just like an urban legend, a popular myth. But somehow it wound up in a dinosaur book I had as a kid. And so wedged deep in, in my brain, the one in my head, <laughs> was this factoid that dinosaurs had a second brain in their ass. And sure enough, it's not true. And so years later, when I at the museum with Caitlin, I'm like, wow, yeah, dinosaurs had a second brain in their butt. And she looked at me like, you got a brain in your butt if you actually think that. Man, I wish I had the reference because there's an episode of the podcast Freedom where they talk about this <gasps> and they go into specifically like the they end up looking it up and like both the writers or scientists or whatever that were involved in this weird theory originally that they might have had like brain stems in their tails or something both of them have fucking ridiculous names as well their names are like rick butford or something <laughs> uh, i think i got it here uh yeah freedom episode 107 yelp paleontologist scott paul and lauren discuss zoos dinosaur brains and dream depot yeah, if you listen to that episode, I'm pretty sure you'll get oh my God, uh, you'll hear even more about this. Insanity. I have to listen to this because uh, this is actually very vindicating to hear, Tom, because, of course, not only did I believe this and I was wrong, but I had a really hard time finding any evidence that people believed it anywhere online. Um, like I even put a, a question up on Reddit being like, did anybody else believe this? And it got very little uh, response. I mean, it could just be that that was Reddit not responding to a question. But uh, for a long while there, I was like, I believe this. And I apparently I was the only person. So to hear that at least it was a widespread enough belief that there's this podcast episode on it is, oh, it's like a load off my mind. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in fairness, um, these, uh, like, Freedom is just a wacky show where a bunch of improv comedians shoot the shit, but, right, but that is but, a topic that comes up. I think Paul F. Tompkins, like, also was in the same position as you at one time in his life. Yeah, exactly. Like, at least, you know, even if it's just a comedy podcast, at least it is proof that out there other people are talking about the same thing. Man, so, okay, so that was all because um, Hex gets tired when he's cold. Yeah, is, is, and, and that, be apocryphal. I don't think that one is. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, you never know. Um, you never know with science. They're always playing <laughs> tricks on you. They're always changing. Um, but then but, we don't get the memo. This is just a little note that I like is that the ring. So his ring of cold is obviously working. Hex feels tired pushing against the block. So he's, he still feels the cold, but he isn't hurt by it. It becomes apparent that the block of ice containing the crate is frozen solid to the floor of the chamber. There's no way this ice is of natural origin. And that's very conclusive because he got a nat 20 to push it. So, um, uh, gent once again, pushes the top middle square and says, and then I wait. It is difficult. The top middle square turns over, once again displaying the three asterisks in a triangle. 
Chantel says, Hex, did the star you, you see look like a cross? The four-line one. Wait, that is two. Okay, Gent will push the middle one, like true middle. The middle square turns over, revealing the same pattern of three asterisks as the one above it. And uh, that, so so right away, we've got one uh, one match right there. Uh, then Gent hits the bottom row middle panel. Meanwhile, Hex uses his sword to scratch the symbol into the ground of the uh, Chaos Star. And uh, so this time, after bringing up, after that first match uh, of the top middle and the true middle of being three little asterisks in a triangle, um, the bottom middle brings up the demonic T sigil. When the bottom middle square turns over, a rune resembling a T appears. This time, you don't even get the impression of the symbols mismatching. The T sigil hurts just to look at, forcing you to close your eyes and perhaps even look away. I have Gent make a constitution throw, and they take two necrotic damage. When they look back to the panel, all the squares are blank again. I think this is where I screwed up. Uh, yes, because then, for some reason... Because they had gotten the T panel, I put, like, the next time that they check the top middle panel, it comes up a T panel, and it ends up hurting them. And so then we end up kind of, like, bouncing around with the thing, uh, randomizing itself, and that's just, like, it's just not satisfying to really get into, because at that point I'm just running the puzzle wrong. Um, uh... We do have some fun, like, uh, back and forth between the players, though. Um, so after the necrotic damage, uh, Gent pushes the first two again and, and calls Hex over and says, Does the magic feeling tell you which is next? Meanwhile, Connor tells from the door, Yeah, you just keep hurting yourself. I definitely don't have a limited amount of heals to give out. And... Uh, then um, Hex comes over and tries to get the psychic feel again, hovering his hand over the bottom left panel. The two in the upper middle are once again revealing the three asterisks. Oh, wait, no. So that I did right for some reason. Oh, I think it might be that um, I had it be whenever they brought up the T-sigil twice. Ah, whatever. Right. Pushing the bottom left square, the T-rune comes up again, forcing a similar reaction in Hex. Hex makes a con save. Hex takes the de necro damage. That's not so bad. Only a couple more to try, right? And then Gent says, oh, unless the order mat matters. And uh, Connor audibly sighs. And Chantel says, maybe Paylor has an opinion on this? Didn't think so. And uh, so they start hitting the buttons again. They get the T-sigil again, and it all starts messing them up. Gent says uh Jen says all right it's time to hash it out so my theory is we want to either make an asterisk sign or a triangle which may still work depending on the order that we push it and the hex hits the top middle center and then the bottom right buttons and uh again the thing hits them basically what ends up happening though and what is very clever is that Connor ends up showing up like he comes over and starts casting augury to tell them wheel or woe on each button. And so if a button would hurt them to touch, then it will say, woe. 
but if it's the right answer, it will say wheel, right? Like Connor basically sees them trying to trial and error this puzzle and hurting themselves doing it. And then finally, Connor gets the idea to come over and basically just start asking Paylor for the answers. <laughs> Did it work? And well, it would have worked a lot better if I hadn't screwed up the thing. It's like pretty quickly after that, um, I I say, oh, geez, I, I actually realized I fucked this up. Um, it, and Alex says, oh, no. I say, I, it shouldn't have reset the way it did. The symbols should still be in their original spot. So I'm going to fix this a bit. And so I have it reset to the point where they figured out that the top left is a is the chaos star, the middle left is the chaos star, the top middle is the three asterisks in a triangle, and the true middle is the three asterisks in a triangle. But then from there, they have one in five odds, but then also Connor has the ability to just hover his hand over one and ask Augury, like, is this the right answer? And he so from there, they're able to do it. They basically use augury to figure out what the right answers are from the four that they would have gotten originally if I hadn't screwed up the puzzle so much. And then uh, with that, they are able to solve the puzzle and open the crate. Um, but the thing was like at this point, the puzzle had been really, uh, really scrambled up. So like the players couldn't really understand what had just happened. Um, so I just kind of like walked them through it at this point. Uh, like I have this note here that says Chantel has no clue. Uh, that's Chantel saying that Alex says Alex is lost. And uh, thankfully they figure it out just fine. And Alex, Alex theorizes, I think we just played battleship with a ghost. <laughs> um, the crate unfreezes. And he throws open the lid of the chest. And I explain, it was the 3 by 3 game of memory. T-Sigils caused the game to reset, which is weird because apparently they only do that when you turn over two of them. So it sort of assumes two characters will be each be turning over one. Um, the first psychic damage was for a mismatch. The, necro the necrotic damage was for drawing T's. I kept rereading the thing because I was like, how is this solvable if it keeps resetting? <laughs> Uh, but it turns out that the mismatches aren't supposed to reset it, just the T's. Anyway, I misread the shuffling rule. They all get 200 XP. And uh, Alex says, Ah, no worries, Bray. Sorry I broke the puzzle with divination. And I say, I'm glad you did. Because the really helped them uh, figure, like, uh, brute force that uh, puzzle without uh, having to get through having to parse all the mistakes that I made, really. I will say another reason that I don't have the sigils reset when I run this is because I want to afford my players the opportunity to use one of those, like, heist movie tricks where they look carefully and they can see which panels are worn more than others or which ones have less dust on them or something like that. Yeah. They never do those, you know, though. <laughs> I've, been playing, uh, I've been playing this game Battlefield Hardline. Ever hear of this? Uh, no. Sounds like a Tom Lando game, though. So it's it's a Battlefield game, like Battlefield 1942 or Battlefield whatever, the Battlefield series. Except this one is Battlefield with cops. Um, 
and it's funny because I thought it was going to be like you play as like a SWAT team or something, but actually in the single player campaign, it's just like you're on Miami Vice. It's like closer to maybe something like L.A. Noir, only like modern. Um, it's really it's a very bizarre game because it gives you all it like it's battlefield, so it's like look at all these guns we give you, but then it only like it rates it gives you like points. And it only gives you points if you, like, arrest people non-lethally or, like, tase them or things like that. So you have all these guns, and all these guns, all they offer you is the opportunity to get, like, no points for your kills. Um, you sort of choose whether you're going to play the game with guns or actually play the game such that it rewards you for your actions. Huh. But the reason I bring it up is because you have a little scanner that you use to like uh, identify perps and stuff and, and see if there's a warrant on somebody so you can arrest them and whatnot. And uh, one of the things you do with the scanner more than once in the campaign is you do that trick of you uh, use the scanner on a keypad and then see the fingerprints on the different keys and uh, sort of reverse engineer the code that way. It's a strange game. I'm not, I'm not really sure what... Uh, why they went the direction they did with it. From what I understand, <laughs> like the the multiplayer is much more what I expected the game was going to be like, where one team is like uh, a criminals doing a heist, and then one team is like a SWAT team trying to take them down. But then the the campaign, like I say, is much more like a like a homage to like Die Hard sort of thing, where you're just like a cop. Uh, yeah. Hmm. It's strange. Anyway. Uh, popping the lid open, they find that the crate is full of ice, brains, and three greater potions of healing. And Chantel says, more brains, folks. And I say, the brains are all different shapes and sizes. And Alex says, well, I guess we can see what happens if we plug them into the pedestals now. Chantel says, before we do, I want on the record that I worry we are just feeding our enemy in doing so. And I ask, uh, does everyone take one greater healing potion? And Gent says, yes. And I say, Gent now has three. But of course, what I'm quietly doing in the background here is tracking that one of them gets the greater healing potion that's not a greater healing potion. You know, this trick. Do you do this trick when you run the module, McGill? What, that one is... Uh, is uh... That there's... That the cooler has greater healing potions in it as well but one of them is actually poison yes i do this and let me tell you tom it still hasn't paid off yet because in the in both parties when i've run this the, those those parties are freaking potion hoarders man they collect all these yeah. potions they never bust them out i mean gent takes one of the three and it leaves them with three right there I will say that I had to track this potion for a long time. I'm pretty sure that Connor ends up with it. Um, but, uh, like, we are not going to hear from this poison potion for many sessions. <laughs> the point is, somebody pulls a, one of these... Everybody takes a greater healing potion from this cooler, and one of them is going to turn out to be poison eventually. Um... So, uh, they each take one. Uh, Hex asks, how would we feel about taking a short rest or would the brains thaw it and spoil? And uh, I put re pink rectangles on the map to, know, 
to denote the locations of each brain basin. I have everyone roll medicine. And uh, Gent with an 18 and Connor with a 20. Well, okay, so Gent with an 18. Hex gets a nat 1. Gent recalls the brains that seem to be sitting in the corner of the previous room, the one full of gore and slime. They seem to be in okay uh, condition. And Gent says, ugh, so icky. And uh, Alex says, actually, shit, let's not rest in case those aliens come back. Meanwhile, Connor realizes something. The brains here were on ice, but the ones in the previous room were pickling. That's what the room was for. The slime environment will preserve the brains. Um, so uh, they go over. There's four basins, one for each chamber. And I have a little pink rectangle for each basin. And uh, uh, I show them, uh, looking at the map of the dungeon at this point, Jen immediate, or Chantel immediately has a realization and is like, oh shit, maybe you should rest because it's going to open the middle of room. Like, I didn't tell her that or anything. She just looked at the map and said, oh, this is going to open the middle room. Like, I realize what's going to happen now. And uh, I say that you only really examine the first, the basin in the first room in detail. That one seemed to be shaped for a human brain. And, uh, uh, Alex says there was a normal sized brain and an ogre brain in the pickling room. And, uh, Chantel says, isn't this against your religion or something, Connor, to play with dead parts? And, uh, Connor says, I do what I must to bring Paylor's light to these shadowy places. Meanwhile, uh, he asks Gent what her HP is like. It's at 146 out of eight, 180. Um, and, uh, Hex says, I'll probably be fine for one room. Probably. Uh, then I say, there are dozens of brains of various shapes and sizes in the icebox. The pickling room had what appeared to be a humanoid brain and a giant humanoid brain. And uh, Connor reminds Gent that they're death warded so that if they die, they'll actually go to one HP and stay up. And uh, Chantel says, all right, I will inspect the nasty basin. And Hex and Connor start delicately sorting brains by size. And I say for each bra basin, they can roll medicine, investigate, or both. Investigate at advantage. And we already know the basin in the south chamber is a humanoid brain shaped. So they go around identifying the different basins. And uh, the uh, Chantel finds the one that has a larger indict indent likely designed for a giant brain and says giant brain please i like we basically get into like scalpel giant brain <laughs> lizard brain like just like passing brains over you know actually it reminds me of uh do you know uh repo the genetic opera sure do they got that song mark it up where they're passing the they're passing the body parts to each other or the, the yeah. organs to each other one brain mark it up that's like the only song that really stayed in my head apart from that one that where they were using as the promo um, it occurs yeah, to me brain, it occurs to me that there's uh it occurs to me that there's a missed opportunity here to make each of the brains also like representative of a different uh sort of structure of your brain because the lizard brain right is like the, the reptilian brain is a part of the human brain and uh I was. It's kind of a shame that uh, they aren't all named after those different parts. 
Yeah. Um, the uh, what's it called? The triune yeah, I, brain. I was... It's part of the triune brain. Yeah, I would. Oh, oh the butt brain. The dinosaur the butt di- brain. God. God damn it. Uh, <laughs> and the line I was thinking of for Repo was one brain market up. Only I've got brains enough. Anyway, uh, so they're playing that game. They're they're just tossing brains, marking it up. Um, Connor runs to the pickling room and retrains, retrieves the large brain they saw there. And uh, if it's there, um, Connor comes back with a big old brain to give Gent. Gent tries not to gag as they place the brain in the basin. The giant brain is surprisingly dense. It fits into the larger indent just right. And as they let its weight sink into place, they hear a satisfying click of a lock being opened. Next, they head south and they get go for the human brain. Um, uh, Gent says, do we have a hate human brain? And they return to the first chamber, reuniting with the table surrounded by corpses. And Hex shouts, I'm not sure I haven't tasted any of these yet. I say there would definitely be a human brain in the ice box. Alternatively, there was a humanoid brain in the pickling room. Hex grabs one out of the ice box and brings it over. And uh, Gent says, cool, the honor is all yours. And I will head to the west room, see what brain would fit. Human brain fits into the slot. And once again, you hear that satisfying sound of a lock opening. Uh, Gent rolls for the uh, western one and I say this is a weird one it's smaller and shaped kind of differently than the others recalling their studies of the natural world Gent realizes that this would match the brain of a roper and uh, Gent says hmm do I recall a brain fitting or having fought a roper I say it's likely that this unusual variety was included among the various kinds in the icebox don't remember fighting one off the top of your head but you've read about them Gent's college education kicking in there. And so they uh, bring the brain from the icebox to the basin. Alex says, giant brain, human brain, roper brain. What kind of madman built this place? And uh, Gent says, you have the honor of doing the last room. And I say, the roper brain is, well, ropey and feels more like laying a wet sock into the basin. You find you have to stretch it and pat it down a bit before the basin accepts it, but making the same unlocking sound. And Hex says, gross. Hex will investigate the last receptacle. And it takes a hexakilo a moment. It's different from the others. But then he realizes, is this on purpose? The last one requires a lizard brain. What are the odds the gent would make you do that one? And Alex goes, <laughs> right? Hex walks, Hex walks back to the ice chest and checks for a lizard brain. Finds one amongst the various animal brains included in the ice box. The familiarity, now that you recognize it, is highly disconcerting. Uh, Hex will return to the pedestal and put the brain in the hole. He yells, here we go, right before he does. And Gent winks at Hex and says, glad there was one provided. With the last brain lowered into the basin, the final lock clicks and the whole vault begins to rumble slightly. You see the walls descend behind each basin, revealing an entryway into a large central chamber shaped like a diamond between the other four chambers. Gent says, I hit the save button. And then I filled in the skull faces of each chamber to show how each uh, chamber of this dungeon actually looks like a skull. And we got a little screenshot of it so everybody had the reveal. I'll include that. And uh, I say, I've adjusted the map to reveal to you that each chamber was actually in the shape of a skull. And Jen says, damn, very cool map. Like, coolest map. And uh, the basins are, of course, the pink triangles where the brains would be and the skulls. 
Gent rolls stealth to uh, creep up into the entrance to the new chamber. Gent rolls a 26, fading into the shadows, ducking behind a basin as they peer into the central chamber. Hex and Connor uh, move back around to regroup with the rest of the party and uh, into... Uh, into the uh, brain chest room, or or no, the uh, oh, actually, now I think of it. Uh, how did they do this? Uh, no, they they all went to the western room, uh, to stick together. And uh, Hex asks, "Are we gonna? Are you gonna scout ahead, or are we gonna charge him?" And uh, Jed says, "We stick together." So, uh, Hex says, "All right, I'll do some sneaking with you." Connor can hang back a little, and. Uh, is the lighting here dim? And I say, yep. And uh, that gives Hex his advantage on stealth from his cloak of the bat. And they start creeping up and they start creeping. I say, the interior of this chamber has been festooned with many graven images of skulls and brains. Some small, some large. There's only the faintest of light here, a shimmering alien pulse that glows from within the crevices of the walls and ceiling. In the center of the chamber sits a glittering heap of gold pieces. Around the room, you can see that the other entryways have been opened by the brain lock sequence, one for each basin. Hex looks at the treasure and then at Gent with a clear alarm on his face. And uh, Gent says... Is it gold like gold pieces like coins or gold as in thingamabobs? And I say gold as in currency. Gent walks towards it a bit and then realizes it is money and then the compulsion dies. Garage sale junk or bust? <laughs> and I ask, how close do you go before stopping? And then uh, they say, if the basin is my starting point and each square is five feet, then 25 feet away from the basin. I say you get just close enough to detect that there is something in this room that can't be seen. Something invisible. Right by the pile of gold. From one of the southern entryways, one of the alien warriors from earlier enters the room. It glances around, weapon at the ready. And Gent motions at Hex. And uh, that's where we broke. Oh, oh man. Also, Gent, mo Gent motions at Hex, but I point out, uh, you're invisible. <laughs> and they say, damn it. <laughs> man. Oh, so it continues. I mean... I feel like this is sort of the swan song for writhing in the dark on this show because we've covered it in so many different ways and this is definitely the most in-depth but like I appreciate that we are going all out with this this revisitation to the module. I point out re-dent visit monitoring at motioning at Hex unless you choose not to be invisible you are invisible and they say I'm gonna still motion yeah I'll stay invisible and motion for the joke. <laughs> Gotta love commitment to the vet. Man, right on. So next time there's an Illithid. Yeah, next time is the final the final fight. Nice. Nice. Oh man, you know what? Like even just looking at this the screenshot of the map that you did, like the 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 diamond-shaped layout also has a sort of an alien H.R. Giger design quality to it with, like, the skulls built into it. That's a real Giger look. And it occurs to me, you know, it could be frozen, Tom. Forget DNA samples. It could be, like, a dude in cryostasis with a chestburster inside him. Oh, shit. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're moving him into the lab. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man. I like this. 
I might have to do like an alien one shot just to run Writhing in the Dark. You could also run it like one of those classic like Left for Dead sequences where it's like, all right, we got to move this guy out of cold storage into the lab to open it. But that's going to like activate the rail system and then it's going to like cause all this noise. And the aliens are going to come through the woodwork. Yeah, do like a wave after wave of enemies as you try to get them into the next room. Right on. Love it. Is it danger room time? Speaking of, they opened the danger room. Is it time for us to open the Hell danger yeah, room? Yeah, they opened a dangerous room. I believe uh, I believe it's our turn, unless you've got any further thoughts to explore on Writhing in the Dark, but I don't know. We're Like you say, we've gone pretty in-depth on yeah. it. yeah. So let's go over to the RPG danger room. So, um, as I mentioned to you off the air... Been really I'm actually just going to give a, a quick uh, shout out to the credits since we've got the adventure yeah. here. We've got the, the adventure was designed by Alan Patrick, it says. Uh, development and editing by Travis Woodall and Claire Hoffman. Uh, and then there's other stuff the organized play, DD Adventures League, Wizards team. I don't know what all that's about, but uh, it looks like various people of the Adventures League team. But in terms of the adventure design and development of, and editing of this incredible adventure, looks like Alan Patrick is the main name with Travis Woodall and Claire Hoffman, uh, who are also listed as uh, people in the... Or they're all listed as uh, people at D&D Adventures League administrators. Hell yeah. Uh, mad props and shout outs to them. Totally. We, we love this one. So, over to the danger room. As I mentioned to you off the air, uh, I've been really busy since we last recorded an episode, and uh, I fully intend to bring Nobilis to the danger room uh, for us to get... Have you started digging into it? Oh, I have. And uh, the reason that I didn't bring it this time is it's a lot, man. There is a lot going on with this game. And uh, is it easier to understand than WTF WTF? Uh, I'm going to go with yes, but it is still very complex. But like uh, it's easier to understand in that I can give you the one word pitch for Nobilis in a way that that you will like comprehend, which is to say uh, your characters in Nobilis are a lot like characters from like Sandman, the Endless. This is what I was thinking, yeah. Yeah, so so I will say it's easier to sort of wrap your head around, but it is also uh, a diceless RPG, um, and, like, the first 100 pages of the 370-page source book are all set up. Like, character creation begins on page 102. So... <laughs> There's just, there's a lot going on with it, and I will bring it next time. But uh, in classic McGill fashion, didn't have a lot of time to get into a really in-depth RPG, so instead, I'm bringing something really kooky crazy and fairly small. I am bringing the game Prawn. Prawn by Mike Young is not just an RPG. This is a first for our podcast, Tom. It is a LARP. It is a live-action role-playing game. It's intended to play... Yeah, it didn't occur to me we haven't done any yeah, LARPs. Yeah, this, this one is intended to be played as a LARP. So, you know, like you can D&D &D LARP if you want. 
but this is the first time we've encountered a game that is full-on intended to be played as a LARP, and you literally could not play this as a pen and paper RPG. There's no way. And have you um are you familiar at all with Mind's Eye Theater? I'm not, no. Mind's Eye Theater are the like explicit LARP editions of the White Wolf RPGs. Okay, cool. So like Mind's Eye Theater Vampire is like a LARP version of the rules that I believe you play with cards. Like you flash cards at each other to delineate certain rules things. Interesting. But uh yeah. You know, I've never even played any LARP. I've never done a LARP. Have you? Uh, no, but you know, oddly enough, uh, Chantel, who plays Gent, when I went to her wedding this past year, I got a ride to, um, where it was with a guy, a friend of hers who is in a Mind's Eye Theater vampire LARP that takes place in Toronto. And he lives in like, like, uh, oshawa or something like he really has to drive like a long way out every every time to get out to this larp game where he dresses up like a vampire with a bunch of other people dressed as vampires and they walk around and tell a story together um but like he says that like he drives out there and then like plays for like a six hour session i've got uh i got some friends who play who who run big LARPs in Massachusetts. I don't know what system they use, but like I've talked to it's my friends, Evan and Aaron and Costa and Jess are all just, yeah, they're, they're big time LARPers. They run all sorts of fun LARPs and tell me tales about them. Recently, Evan has been posting on social media that he's building like a, a major prop for an upcoming LARP that he's running. And it's this crazy, like it's a Warhammer, but it looks like a, like a 40k style warhammer that he's made out of foam and like you know uh, greebled together with with bits of toys and 3d printed parts and it's got a big foam like head to the hammer too it's gigantic it's like five feet long um and it's looking great it's this really awesome prop that he's putting together and i just i love the idea that not only is he going to run this prop but clearly whoever comes out on top of the larp is gonna is going to wind up with a cool Warhammer to take home with them. Anyway, all that to say, I have never done any live-action role-playing. Uh, I'm not against it. I've just never really, just never really done it. But uh, this game, Prawn, this is meant to be played as a LARP. And uh, here's the thing about Prawn. Uh, let, me, let me tell you what the premise of the game is. While my cats run around like crazy. Um, the premise of Prawn is that the players, the main players, what we would call the PCs, are all, uh, they all take on the roles of edible seafood in a big aquarium at a restaurant. And then there are also players who are more like NPCs. They're still represented by people, but they are not as active in the game. They are called the Horde, and the Horde are the people at, the humans at the restaurant who are effectively going to be, you know, dealing, 
with the aquarium in various ways. Maybe they will be distributing food to the sea creatures in the aquarium, or maybe they will be plucking sea creatures from the aquarium to be eaten in the restaurant. And the TM that I mentioned at the start is the tank master, the master of the fish ah. tank. Um, it is meant, this game is meant to be played. There are a lot of specific props that are pretty easy to find or make, but you know, there are specific things that you need. And it's meant to be played in a swimming pool. Um, so really, this is the ideal kind of game where if you're having like a day-long pool party with a whole bunch of friends who all like RPGs and games like that, this is the kind of thing you could play as an excuse for everybody to be outside, having fun, playing in the swimming pool, but also playing an RPG. But Tom, before I get into the nitty-gritty of Prawn, there is a topic I wanted to address with you, because... At a glance, as I was reading the rules document for Prawn, I started thinking to myself, like, is this actually an RPG? It seems more like a party game to me. But then I thought, I mean, then I thought, but wait, like, is something like, where, you know the game Werewolf or Mafia? Those games where, like, different players have different roles and the object of the game is for everybody playing to figure out who the, the werewolf is. Or I think there's like, is I've never played it, but I imagine secret Hitler is probably something like this too. Yeah. One of those bluff. Games. Yeah, exactly. Is werewolf like, is that an RPG? There are roles that people so, are playing. I, I mean, technically, in terms of designation, those are bluff games. Those are bluffing games, which have their own category because, well, you know, bluffing games are for a certain type of person. There are some few type of people who uh, hate bluffing games and it destroys their friendships. And then there's some people who excel at bluffing games and love them. Um, you know, if uh, depends if uh, you can handle the traitors or not. And when um, we were talking about um, time wizards, gnomics, well, all this nonsense, we were talking about gnomics, which are kind of improv games. Time wizards is very improv gamey, and even uh, Wisher Thayer, just fatalist, has a degree of like improv game to it. And what I wanted to ask you about, especially you, uh, you are a seasoned improv. Uh, performer as well you have a lot of experience with improv games like are there defined lines between a role-playing game an improv game and a party game because if i say like rpg we're gonna play an rpg but then i start acting out an improv scene you'd look at me like my you know like my head's on backwards but uh, uh, doing an improvised sketch isn't that just kind of a role-playing game? Especially if it has, like, like a questions-only kind of a thing. You know, we're going to play the questions-only game, and Tom, you're a Zeppelin pilot, and I'm a hijacker. So we have roles, and the rule of the game is that we can only talk in questions. Does that count as an RPG? So... This is the thing is, like, I, first of all, I think that the designation of RPG tends to come down to something more specific than would be implied by just the term role-playing game because i think that 
traditionally what we have what we consider a role-playing game or an rpg is something that has come to be defined much more specifically than a game in which you play a role in which like with that you could argue that any game is a role-playing game based on that because it's like you know if you're playing a team sports you play a role on your Mm, team right like yes but um, i do feel like the word role as as it applies to all of these things i'm talking about party games improv games and rpgs it at least suggests the inhabiting of a character right you are you're taking on a, a new role that is that is different than who you actually are. Like if you're on a t- a sports team, you're still Tom, even if you're playing a position on that team. Whereas in something like werewolf, like, no, you are the secret werewolf and you have to keep your identity a secret and you have to be like predatory and strategize about how to predate upon the other players. So the thing I would say is that traditionally or or the way that rpg has come to be defined as i understand it is the critical thing that defines rpgs as we know them today uh, is progression the idea that your character has some type of statistical measurement to them which changes uh, whether that changes because you gain XP or because you are spending points or whatever, the thing that like every quote unquote RPG has in common, like this is what makes Pokemon an RPG uh, as like in terms of like its genre video game is because your Pokemon level up and evolve and they get they have stats and stuff that you track. To me, the key difference in these improv things, and it it's it's kind of different in the case of something like werewolf, but it's the thing of like there is a general amount like the example you used of the improv game of the questions only, there is no uh rule that delineates a. a there's no rule that delineates a statistical difference between us in that scenario. However, we are both improv players playing the game on the same. However, in theory, especially if you, if we're talking about like how questions only is played on a game, uh, on a show, like whose line is it anyway? uh, There is a degree of progression where part of the point is to see how long you can survive without screwing up. Right. On whose line they have right, four but players. you're not gonna have a, you're not gonna have a stat that tracks that though. You you are always going to be just the other guy in the room with this person that you're playing. With. Okay, so it's a sense of progression is definitely. The more I think about it, the more I feel like that is absolutely a sort of a concrete rule on how it differentiates because I was. Tr- it's an interesting rule too because you think about one shots and it's like a one shot is one shot of an RPG wherein you basically don't get any of the benefit of that continuity of progression right. but you are aware of where they are in that progression. Yeah. Sorry, you were going to say Well, something? and like I was thinking the things that were coming to my mind when I was thinking of RPGs are things like, you know, it was like dice. No. Dice clearly aren't necessary for something to be a role-playing game. Uh, Why 
noblest that I was looking at today is a diceless RPG. So there we go. So dice, not it. And I was thinking like character sheets. Maybe character sheets is like almost it yeah. because the character sheet does transcribe all those rules that I think are in like that are inherent to what a role playing game is. It's just that you don't necessarily to have to have it written down. So he, you tend you tend. So to. what about a case like our old friend Fiasco? Those. So Fiasco, you have the benefit of the. Um, there is progression, but never like outside of the one session, right? That's true. And that's that's an interesting point. Again, like when I talk about one shots and the idea of like being in that progression, but not benefiting from any science sense of continuity of it is like cyberpunk works the same way. Right. Where you have the you have the information about your character, you have your stats and everything, but then uh, it's always going to end that session. So you're never going to, you know, develop beyond that point that you're at. I feel like like I feel like there's a, a three circle Venn diagram to be made here with with party game, improv game and role playing game, because it feels like there are these overlapping elements. But the the lines between them are kind of fuzzy. Like, I feel like Fiasco is all three. Right. Like, I, it's it's yeah, Fiasco is a really like a party interesting game. Case. It's also an improv game. It's also an RPG. I think that the only thing that really makes Fiasco an RPG more than, and I, I I really think it's a semantics issue at this point, is like if I were challenged to make to make the case that Fiasco is an RPG more than, say, Werewolf, the only thing I think I could really reach for is the fact that you have successes and failures that you accrue in Fiasco, whereas in Werewolf, the Werewolf doesn't get like, extra points that they can leverage if they kill people they just you know they're just winning well right? uh usually in a game like werewolf they're not just winning but they are also recruiting people onto their team there are more and more werewolves uh the longer the game goes on right yeah i guess it depends on the version of the game i was thinking of uh yeah i was i was thinking of ones where that doesn't happen but Yes, that can happen. In or like uh, another example that came to mind is Microscope, where you nobody playing Microscope has their own character sheet, but I guess it and there are no real dice, but I guess the sense of progression is in building out the timeline that is the focus of Microscope. Like the, the progression is really like world building is the progression. That's an that's a really interesting case as well because I think that there's this whole genre of world building RPGs now with things like Thousand Years Under yeah, the Sun. Yeah, oh, there's a perfect example. Quiet Year. Um, yeah. Yeah. That the fact that Thousand Years Under the Sun has that mechanic of the arcs where mm -hmm. you have like the rise and fall of everything. Like if it didn't have that, it would just be people collaborative drawing. drawing. Yeah. Very, it's very interesting stuff. The, I mean, it is all, it is all semantics in the end. But uh, the reason I was having this thought is as I was reading Prawn, 
Um, as I said, it has a lot of trappings of just like a party game, right? We're going to play this party game. We're all in the pool together and we got a lot of people, you know, over for a barbecue. So we're all going to play prawn together. It has all these elements of a party game. But as I was reading the rules, there are certain points where I was like, okay, but like, like, what am I supposed to be doing during this stage of the game and then I realized like oh I'm supposed to be just playing a character like when you're playing D&D you're not just like okay and when they turn it over to you you have to have an objective no you're just the point is to play your character so I don't know something about the presentation of this made me think like this is a straight-up party game but then there is room for a little role-playing in here I will say though this is another game that is designed to be played in a single session so let me talk about Prawn a bit. I actually just want to give a little shout out. Is there's a bluffing game that's very popular. Do you know Resistance? Yeah, I love Resistance. That's the it's got cards, right? Yeah, with the you you do the missions and everything. That is a very fun game. I like that one. And yeah, I like so I, uh, I actually like the sort of stripped down version of it called Coup. I like that one even more. Yeah. So one time I played uh, Resistance with my friends and like it's basically just a bluff game, mm -hmm. right? You've got two people that are spies and the people in the Resistance. But when you choose who is going to go on a mission in Resistance, you hand out the different cards with the little guns on them, right? Uh, you, there's a bunch of cards with guns on them and you like give one card with a gun on it to one like there's three cards with guns on them and you hand those cards out to say like who's going to be on the mission right right when i played that game when it was my turn to decide who got to go on the mission i was like all right you are going to be on sniper duty and i specifically gave them the sniper rifle and i was like you're going to have to watch the exits while we go in and get the critical data and you are going to be our close range expert i gave someone the submachine gun card and basically like that was me adding role playing to the game that um you know didn't exist right. otherwise right man yeah the these boundaries are fuzzy but they they do exist. It's it's one of those cases where it's it's I think easier to identify what isn't an RPG versus like what is for certain an RPG, right? Like Monopoly is not a role playing game, unless you play out your role. Yeah, yeah, I guess <laughs> that 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 would now be it. Would be hard now. I'm just futzing. Yeah, with it it would be hard to role play as a Monopoly landlord. <laughs> It's a it's a board game. What it? <laughs> or is it like this is what I'm talking about? Anyway, monocles and top hats. That would be pretty great. Everybody dressed like Mr. Peanut. Um. Anyway. Oh man, my cats keep running in and out of my door, <laughs> making it creak. Um. So here's here's prawn, and as we go through this, like we can keep this question in our mind of exactly what is what type of game is this is this actually a proper role-playing game prawn is meant to be played in one session as i keep saying like it's an ideal game when you have a whole bunch of friends over for a pool party and barbecue in the summertime um and you will need certain props uh, and all of these props should be waterproof 
to some degree. Like you don't want anything made of paper because they're all going to wind up in the pool at some point. You need some kind of treasure chest. Um, the, the document says like it can be anything at all. A plastic box full of sand will do. You can find waterproof treasure like Mardi Gras beads if you want to make a, a, tr a full treasure chest prop. You need a pair of hands. This is a fun one. Hand, you need two kind of hand-like appendages attached to seven-foot-long poles. And uh, all I can think is this is probably this is probably intended to be uh, the pool skimmer, like the long-handled pool skimmer with a big. Oh man, I was thinking of uh, taping pool noodles together and putting baseball gloves on. Even the that is totally fine. Like the making an interesting prop is definitely part of this game. But yeah, like tape two pool noodles together end to end, and then duct tape baseball gloves to the end. That's great. Uh, the hands do not have to be dexterous. They just have to be on these long poles. Um, the source document says PVC tubing and styrofoam make great hands. Uh, you can find whatever you need at Home Depot. You need something to represent hit points. Now, there aren't any character... Well, actually, there are character sheets, but they're not character sheets where you track your hit points. You track your hit points by attaching the individual hit points to your bathing suit. So um, the source document here suggests uh, fish-shaped keychains and safety pins. So like you safety pin a keychain to your bathing suit. Um, assume you will need 10 hit points per player. So you basically, you need just a lot of small things that can easily be attached to a bathing suit. And you need something to stand in for food. The suggestion here is you take a pool noodle and you cut it into thin cross sections, so like little floaty pucks, and each uh, floater, each item of food, has a hit point attached to it. So you can see where this is going. You're in the pool, food gets released into the pool, and you can grab the floating food to get hit points and attach them to yourself. And uh, also you need... Well, it just says a large starfish. It starts the game being hung on a wall or a ceiling. It ends the game in the pool. So it can be something made of foam, can be like a floaty pool toy. You just need like some form of starfish that can be immersed in water. Does everything end the game in the pool? Pretty much, yeah. Ex except for uh, like the hands go into the pool, but you never like drop the entire pole in the pool. And anybody who is part of the horde, the the diners at the restaurant, they don't go in the pool. But pretty much all the props end up in the pool. Um, I was just noticing that that trend of starts in the blank ends up ends in up the in the pool. Um, so the setup there are packets that uh, in, the, in the book, I should say actually, the book explicitly says, like, copy this book, cut this book up, take out the, the little sort of player info pamphlets from the book or create copies of it so that they can be distributed among the players. Um, Once the book has been torn into its pages, it needs to be separated into its parts. 
Uh, this just gives you instructions on how to create these little character packets. They're little character packets uh, that give your players just a bit of background on the types of characters they'll be playing. They're all very basic. And it also gives you the option to come up with your own uh, characters if you want. Uh, let me just give you an example of like the type of character that you might play. Um, you're a prawn, you know, right off the top. You've lived in the tank for as long as you can remember. Being a fish, your memory isn't that great. The tank is a weird place. You're surrounded on four sides with something like solid water. It looks like normal water, but you bump your nose when you try to swim through it. Sometimes you can see the image of a ghost fish on the other side reflecting your movements and mocking you. The top of the tank opens into the horrible air above. The bottom is solid. If you wish, you can leap out of the tank over the solid water. If you choose to do this, please see the tank master. I will say that for every five seconds that a fish is out of the tank, they lose one hit point. Um, a day in the... T Just get out of the pool and start taking your stuff off. Yeah, exactly. Well, the, the hit points anyway. Um, That's what I'm saying. A day in the tank is full of wonder and excitement. Giant beings surround the tank and constantly disrupt your world. Sometimes they bring food, but sometimes they grab, uh, they, they grab at you and one of your fishy brethren is taken away never to be seen again. There are those that speak of a life beyond the tank. Good fish are taken away to a place called the sea, but bad fish are taken away to the pot. Or, even worse, the oven. You live in the tank with many other dips, different types of fish and underwater life. Um, this is just information on other potential characters. Uh, the characters can fight. You want to get your food. And that's sort of the existence of a, of a prawn, is you want to uh, get food and avoid being grabbed and, and taken away. Um, so that's just like an example. I mean, since I'm talking about it, I might as well talk about the other types of characters too. There are two gangs. Warring factions of gangs are in the tank. They are the sharks. Can you guess who they're warring against? Uh, uh, what? Yeah, the, the jets. Hmm. Yeah, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> I was like, is this, is it going to be? Yeah, it's the Jets. Uh, when you're a shark, you're a shark all the way. Um, all of the character sheet for the shark is talking about how, like, sharks rule the tank. They fight to keep it that way. Uh, your dreaded enemy is the shark is the lowlife gang, the Jets. The deal with the sharks and the Jets is that, um, so the sharks have a more defit. I expected this kind of behavior from you, Benny, but the Jets. <laughs> um, the idea behind the Sharks is that you want to... Um, anyone could claim to be a Shark. This is actually kind of a bluffing... A, a sub-game that's a bluffing game. Anyone could claim to be a Shark. That's why you have a special gang recognition signal. When you shake hands with another shark, you put your other fin on your head, like a shark's dorsal fin. Anyone claiming to be a shark who doesn't do this is a fake. And you have to determine who the other sharks are. And there's a space on the sheet for uh, you can note down who you know for sure are sharks. Meanwhile, the jets are planning a rumble. Uh, 
they you plan on warning the sharks after the first feeding and then rumbling soon after so that you can get the next feeding and overtake the sharks to rule the tank. Of course, same deal. Anybody could claim to be a jet. That's why the jets have a special gang sign. When you slip fins or shake hands with another jet, you gotta make a jet noise. Anyone claiming to be a jet who doesn't do this is a fake. And so the jets are trying to figure out who all the other jets are to start a rumble with the sharks. There are rules that I will get to about fighting. And then there are the friends of Katie Lou. Uh, Katie Lou is an entity who sleeps at the bottom of the sea. And when the starfish are just right, Katie Lou will rise from her sleep and bring the treasure chest and go on to rule the tank and help all her fishy friends. So if you're a friend of Katie Lou and you want to help her awaken, you have to uh, gather your friends to summon Katie Lou. You wait until the starfish falls from the sky it will land on or close to the Chosen One. Once the Chosen One has been picked, you must surround the Chosen One and dance and chant. This is a, actually, this is great. You'll love this. This is a lot like your, uh, 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 oh, the, the, the fish people. What are they? The Kuotoa. Blah, 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 here's blah, the blah, ch- Here's blah, the chant blah, of the friends of blah, Katie blah, Lou. Blah. Bloop, bloop, didum, datum, wadum, chew. Bloop, bloop. Didum, datum, wadum, chew, and they swam and they swam all over the dam. <laughs> you must chant wow. like this three times all together, like you really mean it, and you have to hold hands and move in a circle. The louder you are, the more chance the Katie Lou will hear you. Then you must all attack the chosen one and kill him or her. A sacrifice to Katie Lou. Um, then you simply have to wait, and Katie Lou will rise from the sunken treasure chest. Hooray! Because membership is, membership in the Friends is a secret you have no way of knowing who else is a member. There's a lot of bluffing in this one. And then finally, the squid. Okay, fish, listen up, see? This tank here belongs to the squid. You're living here, right? Well, you have a nice life here. Wouldn't want anything to happen to that. Desquid and his organization rules the tank. Forget about the wimpy gangs. Desquid is the real power, with tentacles in every slimy dealing. After each feeding, Desquid and his enforcers demand a food from each of the weaker fish. And if the fish can't pay, the enforcers take it out of his hide. And while Desquid is feared by all fish, he is not well loved. That's why it came as a little surprise to find out that someone killed the squid last night. Or everybody's talking about it. Many fish have a reason to want the squid dead. Those who are being extorted want the extortion to stop. Those who are part of the squid's gang want to move up in the organization. And there have even been some goody-goody fish vigilantes who want to see the squid's reign of terror end. Where do you fall? And then there's a section here where you can note down who the enforcers for the squid are, who the victims of the squid are, and who, which fish found the squid's body. So these are the different roles that you can take on. You can see that there's some bluffing. There's a lot of like investigation and sussing out. And then, um, let me see here, Tom. We're starting to go a bit long on time. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to make a character with you this time. I might finish off Prawn early on our next session, but I do at least want to get through how the gameplay on this works. So the gameplay on this works, uh, it's a, it's like a, a timed schedule. It's one of those, are those games where like things 
happen according to a schedule and then everybody has to react. So uh, here is a timeline. The timeline is set in minutes after the game starts. A typical game of Prawn lasts for about two hours. You can add or remove events from the timeline as you see fit. So at 15 minutes, a family comes into the restaurant. They all gather around the tank and they order a crab. Um, if there's anybody who doesn't want to be a main player in the game, but also wants to swim, you use them as a secret horde plant in the, in the tank. They're the crab and the family just picks them with the, with the hands. So all right off the bat, you want to get everybody in the pool sort of worried that, they might just be a goner right away because the first thing that happens is some people come into the restaurant and they go, we'll take that guy. And then the big hands come down and snatch up the crab, Mr. Pinchley from the tank. At 35 minutes, there is a feeding. And this is where members of the horde come in. And every time the members of the horde show up to either uh, pick, pluck a fish from the pool or do a feeding, they're supposed to bring in the bag of food and the big hands simultaneously so that no one in the pool has any idea which action is going to be taken. So at 35 minutes, there's a feeding. There are two feedings during the game. Two horde members come out with hands and another comes out with a large trash bag of food. The food handler quickly tosses the food out to the players. The food handler should try and spread the food out instead of just dumping it in one spot, but the process should be handled quickly. Whenever there is a feeding, the hands should be brought out as well, just to keep it, the players from knowing what's about to happen. Um, and during that feeding, fish, you gotta fight over the food, you gotta grab your hit points. Um, after the feeding, the leader of the gang, Sharts or Jets, that controls the tank, gets three extra food. You just hand them to the whoever the, the leader of the gang is that controls the tank. Um, some players, this is a part of your character sheet, uh, there are special abilities called fish sticks. <laughs> Crone. And the fish sticks uh, offer a degree of customization that like just they're they're cool special abilities that can differentiate your character from the group. For example, you might have the fighting fish shtick. You may always hold up. Uh, oh, this is a bad example because I haven't covered combat. Let's do the fish food shtick. Every time you eat an incapacitated fish, you gain a hit point. So, yeah. So there there are these these extra abilities that help you survive. Um. Also remember, after a feeding, if a fish has not eaten at least one food, that fish loses a hit point. Make sure to check with the players to see if any of them didn't eat. Um, then the cat comes in and howls loudly to get fish. After a while, the, uh, the tank master should shoo it out of the pool area. Then uh, at an hour in, two kids come in and start tossing a football around. It either lands in or it lands in the tank, or one of the kids falls into the tank. There's a sound of glass smashing, and it's announced that the tank is broken. Water is spilling onto the floor. Ten, uh, the players have ten minutes to deal with the mess. People can get out of the pool during this time. This is basically a scheduled chance for people to leave the pool, relax, whatever. It's just like a scheduled break. 
Uh, one hour ten, the break's over. They're in a new completely repaired tank, but all fish have lost one hit point. Then, at one hour twenty-five, there's another feeding. Then at one hour forty, a starfish falls from the sky. You take the big starfish prop and you toss it into the tank. The character who it lands closest to is the chosen one for the friends of Katie Lou. And then finally, the animals are people to raid. Have all the horde come in yelling gibberish. Uh, I should have noted before, the horde always has to speak in gibberish because the fish, they, they don't know what people are saying. So whenever the, the humans, the human characters come in, they're just going, they speak in like Simlish because the fish have no idea what that means. Um, so all the horde come in yelling gibberish. They bring the hands. They have them catch fish and drag them out of the tank. All the fish are transported to the sea. Game over. And that's so the, bi the big finale. Um, whenever you need... It's kind of apocalyptic. Yeah, it kind of is. Uh, whenever you need to remove a fish from the tank, you will need two horde members to manipulate the hands. The hands need to be wielded with care. Um, something I like about this document is that while it is encouraging, like, ridiculousness, there's a lot of stuff in here about, like, you know, you're playing in a swimming pool, s pool safety rules still apply, no running around the pool, um... Try to play in the shallow end whenever possible so that nobody risks drowning. And here they say, um, have the horde members practice with the hands before using them on the players. They should be wielded gently. A simple tap or brush with the hands is sufficient. Under no circumstances should anybody attempt to hit, slap, or hurt people with the hands. Uh, players should aim for any part of the body that is not the face. Whenever the hands are brought out, make sure the bag of food comes as well, just to keep things murky. And then unscheduled events can be added to your game. There's a big selection of them uh, here. Uh, let me give you an example of an unscheduled event. Um, a small child has been left alone to wander around the restaurant and spies the fish tank. The child runs over to watch the fish cooing and shrieking in gibberish and should have some food which can be thrown to feed the fish and also one hand. If a fish gets too close, you can try to grab it. Uh, if you do, shriek and immediately let go. If they start getting too close and curious, when you grab the fish, remove it from the tank and drop it. It will probably die unless rescued. So there are, you know, some random encounters that you that a fish in a tank at a restaurant might have. I like the idea of lying poolside at a party and slowly... Pulling head points off of myself gasping until somebody realizes and, I'm outside and of like the pool. flopping around feebly. Um, and let's see here. There are pre-generated characters. You can make your own character, but I think I think we're actually I think I'll save. Um, we're gonna make a character for you next time, Tom. We're gonna do the full character creation for Prawn just for fun and go over the prefab characters. But uh, that's like the overview of how you play Prawn. I think this is pretty fun. But, I mean, is this an RPG? Is this an improv game? Is this a party game? I don't know. Maybe, we, maybe it doesn't matter. What do you think of this nonsense? I mean, I'm not much of a pool guy. I'm not much of a swimming guy, so it's not really my kind of thing. But ah, but would you but would you be into standing poolside and and knocking people around with a seven foot pole? 
Well, I was going to say it'd be funny to try and uh, organize a game of this at uh, Oasis Aqua Lounge. <laughs> which is a sex club equipped with a hot tub yeah. and swimming pool in Toronto. Or, you know, you could do it at like a, like a festival, find find a plunge or some ball pit that somebody's brought and uh, play it in there. Ooh, yeah. I mean, I I am definitely past the prime age for this. Oh, yeah. Reading this, like, reading this, all I can think of is, I've mentioned him on the show before, uh, my old friend James, the guy who introduced me to RPGs, he introduced me to Rifts and Dungeons and & Dragons, and White Wolf, actually. Like, he's the point of origin for all my RPG interest way back in grade 6. That guy had a pool, and let me tell you, like... Age 14, spending a summer day at James's place with a bunch of our friends playing around in the pool. Man, I kind of wish we had prawn. We would have played this game, and it probably would have been a, a damn good time. Sounds fun. I don't know. It's not, uh, like you say, it's a bit, uh, it's a young man's game. It's a young man's I mean, I guess if you, I guess if you have a swimming pool, <laughs> I don't have a swimming pool, so, uh. I used to have a swimming pool. I didn't know that. It is, it, it, yeah, oh, you know, we had a we had a pool in the backyard, but now it's all taken uh, apart because uh, couldn't couldn't maintain it. You you know what this game would actually be great for as well is like a summer camp game. If you're a camp counselor and there, yeah, I was just about to say we don't have a pool in our backyard anymore, but we have a cottage which is by a lake. Yeah, exactly. So. Like that's that's sort of a prime opportunity for it too. But yeah, this is pretty fun, and uh, it's fun enough that I do want to go over the characters the next time that we uh, we talk about it. Interesting. Well, I'll be ready for it. Anything else, McGill? Not me. Ah, you can't just do that. It's uh, episode 151 this has been. If you want to get in touch with us, see when we post new episodes or follow us, check us out on Facebook, Comparing Campaign on Facebook. Or if you want to see our show notes and supplemental materials, check us out on comparingcampaign.wordpress.com. Uh, who's got a pool to play prawn in? Not me. Uh, level up. That means it's an RPG. Hey, oh. <laughs> Thank you.